6. I know I teach this a lot, and I know that I use this scripture a, a whole lot. But you know, every time I study along this line, it strengthens my faith. Every time I minister along this line, my eyes are opened a little bit more than they were to who we are in Christ and what belongs to us. And one thing that I found out is no matter how many times I teach on this, some people hear it for the first time. And then other people see it for the first time. And there's a difference between those two. It's one thing to hear what the word says. It's another thing for your eyes to be open and really see it. Amen. And the more we focus on these things, the more and more our eyes are open to the truth. Genesis 126. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air. And over the cattle and over all the earth. And over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of, him, of God created he him. Male and female he created he them. And God blessed them. And God said unto them. Now I want you to notice verse 26 is the only place where the Bible gives us. Uh, or identifies the purpose for why God made man. He made man to have authority. He didn't make man because he was lonely and needed a family. God is God. He doesn't get lonely. If God could be lonely, he couldn't be God. He made man because he wanted man to have authority on the earth. And so he tells them, verse 28, God blessed them and said unto them, be fruitful. He didn't say, look to me to, be, to make you fruitful. He said to multiply. He didn't say, I'll multiply things for you. He said, replenish the earth. He didn't say, I'll do it for you there too. And then he said, subdue it. Well, if God intended man to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth, then in the same way God intended man to subdue the earth. In other words, it's the same as God saying, don't come to me to try to get me to fix things. He said, subdue the earth. Now, the word subdue means to bring something underfoot or to conquer. He's telling man, keeping the earth in line is your job. Then he goes further and says, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 tells us, that God, tells us how God made man or the, the, the method by which he did so. It said he formed man from the dust of the ground. He made his flesh. He made his body. And then it says he breathed in him the breath of life. He breathed in him the breath of life and man became a living soul or a living being. So we could certainly say without fear of contradiction that the source of man's life was God himself. When God breathed into man, he's breathing himself into man. He's breathing his own spirit into man. So what was God's original plan for the earth? Now remember, God never changes. God said it this way, I am God, I change not. I like the way he said that. That's authoritative. It's definitive. He said, this is it. Like it or not, this is it. That's the way it's always going to be. Well, if God ever intended for man to have authority, he always intends for man to have authority on the earth. He doesn't change. So if his original plan was for Adam and Eve to have authority on the earth, his present day plan, his future day plan, would be for man to have authority on the earth. But because man was a living soul because of God breathing his spirit into him, we have to clarify a little bit to understand the reality or the real truth of God's purpose. And that very simply is God intended for righteous man to have authority and dominion in the earth. God never planned for part of mankind to be unsaved. God never planned for part of mankind to be unrighteous. God's purpose and everything that he did in the work of creation was to create an environment where righteous man could rule. 
Now, if we look at righteousness from the standpoint of creation, we would have to recognize that Adam wasn't the ruler of the earth because of anything he did. Adam wasn't the ruler of the earth or literally the God of this world because of some special thing that he had done or some special favor he had obtained of God. He was a created being. He just all of a sudden was. And God said, this is your job. Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion. That's your job. So Adam could easily have said that his righteousness was of God because that's all he had. That's all he was. We think of it from the standpoint of having come from spiritual death into righteousness. But Adam started out as the righteousness of God. There could be no argument about why he was righteous. There could be no argument about how righteous is he. There could be no argument about anything related to that because his righteousness, his existence, his very being was of God himself. Now we know what happened. Chapter 3 of Genesis tells us that the serpent came in and deceived Eve into disobeying God. But the Bible says that Eve was deceived, but Adam was not. Adam knew full well the consequences of his actions. You remember God said, you can eat of every fruit of of every tree in the garden except one. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Well, he can't be talking about physical death because Adam didn't die physically that day. So what death is he talking about? He's talking about spiritual death. Now, spiritual death doesn't mean you cease to exist. Spiritual death means you're separated from God. And you remember the result of them eating of the fruit of the forbidden tree. The eyes of both of them were opened and they saw they were naked and they were ashamed and they heard the voice of God walking in the garden and they were afraid. So they began to make fig fig leaf clothes to cover themselves. So what happened immediately after the fall? When man fell, he became self-conscious. He became aware of his body. Now, up until that point in time, they were not aware of their body in any way that was, any way that would make them ashamed. But they became aware of their flesh for the first time ever. Now, James chapter 3 goes into some detail about the condition of the tongue. Let me read something to you here in relation to the fall. Beginning in verse 1, James 3, verse 1. My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we will receive the greater condemnation. For in many things we offend all. The word offend is the word stumble. For in many things we stumble. If any man offend or stumble not in word, the same is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. Notice James tells us right off the bat, the Holy Ghost tells us through James. He tells us that the key to controlling your body is to control your tongue. He says if you can control your tongue, you can handle and deal with anything and everything there is in in this physical realm. If you can control your tongue, you can control anything and everything about your flesh. That means if you can control your tongue, you can walk in divine health. That means if you can control your tongue, you can walk in the blessings of God concerning provision. If you can control your tongue, then you can walk in anything and everything Jesus purchased for you. If you can control your tongue. Now notice it doesn't say if you can control your tongue and believe God enough. It doesn't say if you can control your tongue and live a good enough life. Everything, according to James, everything is tied into the control of the tongue. Now, that's going to be important. We'll tell you why in just a minute. Verse 3, Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us, and, and we turn about their whole body. You ever thought about that? The largest, the strongest, the most powerful horse can be controlled by putting pressure on his tongue. Behold, also the ships which, though they be so great, are driven of fierce winds, yet they are turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Even so, the tongue is a little member, 
and boasteth great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindles. It's saying that every fire starts, no matter how big, no matter how destructive, every fire starts from the same spark. It's a single spark that, that puts fire in motion. Verse 6. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature and is set on fire of hell. Well, folks, that's not the way God made the tongue. That wasn't a condition that existed before the fall. So we could clearly see and understand that when Adam and Eve's eyes were opened through their own disobedience, their eyes were opened, they saw they were naked and ashamed. Now all of a sudden, they're losing control of their tongue. Or they have lost control of their tongue. Now let me explain what I mean by that. And I believe this is what James is referring to. It doesn't mean that they couldn't say what they wanted to say. It doesn't mean that they were powerless to speak whatever words they chose to speak. The loss of control of their tongue means that for the first time ever, their mouths are controlled by what they can see in the physical realm and not according to the life of God that was within them or had been within them. In other words, everything prior to the fall that Adam and Eve did in this earth, every means of authority, every means of or every action that they took to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the things here in the earth. Everything was based on who they were by the Spirit of God within them. They weren't bound by just operating according to what they could see. The knowledge that Adam had, which was huge, Adam's naming animals and bugs and stuff. He's giving them names according to the... the uh, that are appropriate according to the way that God had made these animals. Adam's intellect had to be incredible. Medical science tells us that we use about 10% of our brain power. I think that's a stretch for some folks, but nevertheless. <laughs> there's no way God made you to have a brain that you could only use 10% of. God's not a waster. Why would he waste 90% of brain power? By giving us access to 10. Adam had, had to have had use and access to the complete power that's in the brain that God made him. So Adam fell. Now some people would say, some Christians would say, and, and it seems, um, well, you can have sympathy with this idea even though it's wrong. But a lot of Christians would think that God was too hard on Adam. That he made him leave the garden. But Adam acted with his eyes wide open, folks. Adam knew the consequence. Adam chose to leave the Garden of Eden. Now, I don't doubt in any way whatsoever that there were places or points in time after the fall where Adam may have thought, may have even said, man, I didn't know it would be this much. But he knew the consequences. And he made his choice. It's easy to blame God for the results. But the results came as a consequence that Adam knew full well. He chose to leave the garden. He chose to leave. He chose to forfeit the life of God. That's almost too incredible to consider, isn't it? He chose to leave this perfect environment, this perfect creation that God had made. Well, what happens? Now man is spiritually dead. He's separated from God. He's living in an earth, in a world, in a created environment that's subject to the law of sin and death. And there's only one out. There's only one means of escape. And it's temporary. And it comes to the shedding of blood in a sacrifice. 
God teaches Adam how to sacrifice, how to offer blood to cover his own mistakes and his sins. When the Bible says God made them coats of skin, clothing of animal skin, that's a result of God teaching Adam and Eve how to make sacrifices to cover their sin temporarily. I want you to see with me in Ezekiel chapter 36. I'm going to start in verse 22. God speaking through Ezekiel to Israel, therefore say unto the house of Israel, thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for mine holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the heathen, whether you went. Now what he's about to tell them and the, the plan that he's about to unveil, and it's a prophecy about what will be accomplished through Jesus' sacrifice. Notice he said, I'm not doing this for you, I'm doing this for me. Now, that doesn't mean God doesn't love us. Certainly, he does. But he did it for him. What does that mean? That means that God did it so that his righteousness, which he began with in the Garden of Eden, the righteousness of man, which was made available because God created man in his own image for the purpose of having authority and dominion on the earth. It means God is doing it to bring to fruition the things that he's about to to tell them which are things to come he does them because he is a righteous good loving father it's not really about you it's about him now it benefits you it benefits you a whole lot more than it benefits him but he did it because he's a righteous God So he says, verse 23, And I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which you have profaned in the midst of them, and the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. Here's what God's talking about, why he did it for his name's sake. The world sees God when he changes us. The world is to see God when his righteous nature becomes ours. That's what the world's supposed to see. The world is supposed to see something that makes a change in us. Unfortunately, too many Christians live below that. But that's God's plan. For I will take you out, for I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. Now, he's not just talking about the promised land the geographic boundaries of Israel, he's talking about spiritual possessions. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you. Now he's talking about the spirit. So he's talking about the new birth. He's identifying things about the new birth and what it really entails. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. That's the new birth. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh, a tender heart toward God and his word, in other words. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. So notice God makes a new spirit and then puts his spirit in you. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Notice what God says is the prerequisite, the requirement for being our God, which is the new birth. Except you be born again, you cannot see the kingdom of of God, Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3. So God is telling us, he's revealing to us his plan. Now I'm sure it's a lot easier for us to look back to what Jesus did and understand much more so than people that were looking forward trying to figure out what he's going to do. But God is telling us that there is only one way to fix, only one way to fix man's adventure into spiritual death. There's only one way to fix the death, the spiritual death and bondage that has come on the earth because of Adam's disobedience. 
Only one way, and that's to be born again. Now, folks, you and I know that not everybody is going to be born again, and it's not a matter of whether God wants them to be. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 says God would have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God wants everybody saved. Well, if God wants everybody saved, why doesn't everybody get saved? Because it's not God's choice. He gave authority to man here on the earth. If it was God's choice, he could just snap his fingers and everybody be born again. But when God delivered authority to mankind, when he gave you and I the free will and choice that our lives would be governed and dictated by, he can't take it back. Even if it would be for our own good, he lets us make our choices. So we've got the same choice that Adam and Eve had. Adam and Eve's choice had tremendous consequence, maybe much worse than they thought that it would be. But it was still their choice. In the same way, we have a choice. We have a choice to accept what Jesus has done for us and appropriate his sacrifice for our benefit and escape the bondage of spiritual death or to reject it. Now, folks, make no mistake about this. Everybody that rejects Jesus is going to find out that the consequence of their decision is much worse than they ever thought that it would be. You cannot over overemphasize the torments of hell. And I think part of what will be the eternal torment of hell is that everybody who's there will know that they didn't have to go. Can you imagine having to deal with that thought for eternity? Well, that brings us forward to Jesus. The one who will take away the stony heart out of our flesh. Look with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, Paul deals a great deal, a, a lot, with doctrines that he writes to the Roman church or churches. There's more than one there in the city. But he deals with doctrinal issues much more than he does in other uh, letters that he wrote. And the reason for that is because Paul didn't start these churches in Rome. He's pretty much the spiritual grandfather because people that were uh, saved and ministered to and taught in Paul's ministry are the ones that went to Rome and started these churches. But because Paul hasn't been there, and think of the wisdom of God about this, folks. If Paul had been to Rome and taught these things, these doctrines personally to them in founding the churches, then we wouldn't have a complete record of the doctrines that he taught. Paul considered it the hindrance of the devil. Well, he says so. He says, I meant to come to you several times before, but the devil hindered me. But God turned that to our advantage because now we know the foundational doctrines and the truths that Paul taught and established all of his churches by. And if he had been there in person, we wouldn't have that record. So notice one of the things that Paul taught as a foundational truth in his churches, the ones that he began. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, he says, Wherefore, as by one man, talking about Adam in the Garden of Eden, Wherefore, as by one man, sin entered the world, and death, spiritual death, by sin. And so death, spiritual death, passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. He's telling us what Genesis revealed to us about the creation. He's saying, through Adam's sin, death entered the world, and death gained a foothold over everyone's life. Well, what's going to redeem us from that? Or what's going to be the method or the, the, the way for us to escape that? Skip down with me to verse 17. For if, literally since, by one man's offense, death reigned by one. Again, he's talking about Adam in the Garden of Eden. Much more. Everybody say much more. Now, I know I say this a lot, but I, I cannot read this without making this comment. In the Greek language, this phrase, much more, literally means it's so far beyond it's really not a good comparison. 
the much more that he's about to reveal or about to speak to is so much greater than the first thing that he's already said that it's not a fair comparison. So he says, for since by one man's sin, death entered the world, we know that to be absolute truth. By Adam's sin, spiritual death gained a foothold over all of mankind. Nobody can argue that. That's without question the absolute truth. But then Paul is going to say there's something else that God did to counteract or countermand that that's so much greater than the absolute truth of spiritual death taking hold of mankind that it's not really a fair comparison. For since by one man, one man's offense, death reigned by one, much more they which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. The Amplified says reign as kings in life. I want you to notice the connection between righteousness and authority. The reigning in life would be the exercise of authority. The reigning in life would be the fulfillment of what God created man to do here on the earth, which was have authority. He's saying that the bondage of spiritual death because of Adam's sin cannot really be compared to the abundance of God's grace, his willingness to provide Jesus and his sacrifice for us. And the righteousness that results by us accepting that sacrifice and accepting Jesus as our own Savior. Now let's talk about Jesus for a minute. We know that Jesus was born of a virgin. That becomes a Well, in some circles, it becomes a matter of controversy. And some people take the position that, well, you really don't have to believe in the virgin birth, just believe in Jesus. But folks, the virgin birth was so key, and it was such a a major point, foundational point of the early church. With the records that we have, the earliest records and historical documents that we have about the, the first century church, the first generation of the church. They made a huge deal about the virgin birth. Because without the virgin birth, there could be no sinless or spotless sacrifice for God to make. See, since spiritual death took over mankind because of Adam's sin, then if Jesus came into the earth born of a man and a woman, just like everybody else, then no matter who God intended for him to be, spiritual death would have a hold over him too. But the virgin birth was such a key element, was such an important thing, because it enabled Jesus to bypass, to be born of a woman into the earth, but to bypass the dominion of spiritual death over him. So in other words, Jesus comes into the earth through the virgin birth. Jesus comes into the earth in much the same condition that Adam was. His life is not of his father and his mother. His life is of his mother and the Holy Ghost. Jesus did not have the same awareness of the physical realm through the experience of sin that Adam and Eve had. Now, he knew of these things. He had a greater understanding of it than than anybody that's even experienced it. But he didn't experience it himself. Well, what was Jesus' life like? The Bible gives us very little information about the early days or the upbringing of Jesus. We know where he was brought up. He was brought up in Nazareth. And we know of one event when he was 12 years old, when his family went to the temple. And he winds up being left behind. And then when his family realizes he's not with the rest of the the group that's traveling together, they find him in the temple asking questions of the priest that they can't answer and answering questions of them in such a way that that the chief priests are amazed at this guy. In other words, he's operating by the wisdom of God that comes from within him not by schooling or education of his mind. Here we see Jesus as a 12-year-old boy operating like Adam did before the fall. 
And folks, there's no comparison between living from the righteousness and the wisdom that it provides you because of the life of God on the inside of us. There's really no comparison with any kind of educational system then or now. Maybe it would serve us well to stop and make a comment here. If you're trying to live out of your head instead of the righteousness of God that's been made available to you through the new birth and the wisdom that that brings, you're putting yourself and keeping yourself at a disadvantage. If there is one thing that is, a, that is on the top three list of great needs for the church, it is to learn to live out of your heart and not just lean to your own understanding. So, Jesus' parents come back to Jerusalem, find him in the temple, scold him because of how he's worried them over the past three days not knowing where he was. And Jesus just kind of nonchalantly says, why wouldn't you know where I am? I'm in the temple. I'm in my father's house. Now there's another incident that takes place that's very instructive for us, or should be at least, and that's in John chapter 2. John chapter 2 tells us about the beginning of Jesus' miracle ministry. It tells us about the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. Now apparently, and this is according to the traditions of the day and uh, the way things worked back then, apparently Jesus' mother, Mary, was a relative of whoever was getting married because she has some place in the, the household or in the wedding ceremony wedding activities related to the provisions and the wine that's presented to the people and and that type of stuff. So she sees that they're running out of wine. Now Jesus has already been baptized by John in the Jordan River in just a a few days probably prior to this wedding in Cana. Jesus comes to John where he's baptizing in the, the Jordan River. John recognizes who he is and says, you ought to be baptizing me instead of this the other way around. And Jesus says, suffer it to be so now for the fulfillment of the, of the word. So John baptizes him. And all of a sudden, supernatural things begin to take place. There's a voice from heaven that cries out, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The Holy Spirit comes from heaven like a bird would fly down from the sky and lands on him and stays there. So in this one instance, you've got Jesus the Son, the voice of God the Father, and the presence of the Holy Ghost all in manifestation. It's the best explanation of the Trinity there is. And it's all centered around Jesus' work on the earth. So then within a matter of a couple of days, a few days perhaps, Jesus goes to this wedding in Cana and his mother comes to him and says, we're out of wine. And Jesus says, woman, what have I to do with you? My hour has not yet come. In other words, he seems to be rebuking her for trying, for her trying to get him to operate according to what she wants him to do. Now, instead of getting her feelings hurt, she turns to the servants and says something that's just amazing. She says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Now, folks, why in the world would his mother say that? It seems as if he's just said, I don't have anything to do with this. I'm not going to do anything about this. But even at that, why would she say to give heed to his words to people that don't know him? Folks, there's only one reason. There's only one thing that we can imagine that fits this situation and would fit it and make sense out of what she said. And that is if she's accustomed to supernatural things happening from what Jesus says. Now remember, Jesus is a righteous man. There's no sin in him. He's not bound by spiritual death in any way whatsoever. He's laid aside his heavenly power and glory to come to the earth. In other words, and other translations bring this out, 
In other words, he emptied himself of the heavenly power and glory he had before the creation of the world. He emptied that himself of that. He set that aside for the purpose of coming to the earth to be just like you and me. Now, he wasn't just like you and me in the fact that he was righteous and the life that was within him was of the Spirit of God. That certainly set him apart. And we're not trying to take anything away from that. But what would that mean? That would mean as a righteous man here on the earth, Jesus has every right to exercise authority in his own life, which he did. He exercised authority to go after the things of God. And apparently from his mother's statement, whatever he tells you to do, do it. She must be accustomed to supernatural things coming about as a result of the words he speaks. Now, folks, remember where we started. God created the world, and in Genesis chapter 1, it tells us 10 different times that God said, let there be something, and it was. In other words, it shows us God's creative power as being exercised through the words of his mouth. Well, then how is Adam and Eve, how are they supposed to exercise authority on the earth? If they're made in the image and likeness of God, which the Bible says they are, then they would exercise authority or operate in their authority the same way God did, and that is through the words of their mouth. That's why it's such a key thing about the tongue, losing control of the tongue. Because man, after the fall, was put into position where he still has responsibilities. He still has the same purpose that God put him here on the earth to fulfill, which is to exercise authority on the earth. But now he's not speaking out of his heart. Now he's not speaking out of that source of origin of life, which is God's spirit. Now he's speaking following the fall. Now he speaks according to what he sees and feels. So the earth is in need of dominion, more so than it ever had been because now spiritual death is ruling and reigning. And man sees the problems on the earth. And what does he do? He talks about the problems on the earth. So what happens? The problems get worse and worse because of the words that he speaks. And there's only one thing that can halt that, and that is for the tongue to begin to speak from the heart or from the spirit realm. You remember Jesus said in John 6, 63, the words that I speak unto you, their spirit and their life. You know why that's important? Because it's only when we speak God's words, which are spirit and life, that the exercise of our authority makes a change. And the earth becomes subdued or under our dominion. And that's why the tongue is so important. Jesus seemed to know this. If you remember in Mark chapter 11, Toward the end of Jesus' ministry, it's the last week of Jesus' ministry. After three years here doing miracles on the earth and so forth. Jesus curses a fig tree because it's not fruitful. The next morning they walk by where this fig tree is and it looks like it's been struck by lightning or something similar. The Bible says it's dried up from the roots. There's no green leaf on it anymore. There's no sign of life whatsoever. Peter calls it to his attention. And Jesus explains what he knows about how things works or how things work. He said, have faith in God. He did not say, I did this because I'm the son of God and you're not, so you can't. He said, have faith in God. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Not whatsoever he wants, whatsoever he says. Not whatsoever he thinks, whatsoever he says. So Jesus understood the power of words. And his mother says in John chapter 2, even before he begins his miracle ministry, his mother says whatever he tells you to do, do it. You know the difference between Jesus operating supernaturally in his own life and operating supernaturally for the benefit of others and setting them free? You know what the difference there was? The difference wasn't in him. The difference was 
the anointing that came upon him when the Holy Ghost descended upon him. When Jesus delivers authority, turn with me over to Luke chapter 10. Let me show this to you. When Jesus delivers his authority to the disciples to do the same works that he does, the reason it works is because of the authority that's been given to him. See, Jesus as a righteous man has complete authority, has complete opportunity to exercise authority in his own life, to bring about the will of God on the earth in his life, just like the will of God is in heaven. That's what the world was created for, folks. It was created for the same kingdom of God, the same benefits, the same uh, conditions that operate in heaven to work here on the earth. And it was working that way perfectly until the fall. But Jesus has bypassed spiritual death by being born of a, a virgin. He bypasses the bondage of spiritual death. And so in his life, in his personal life, there's no limit to the exercise of his authority concerning the things pertaining to him. But that doesn't set him up for, uh, to minister to other people. It takes the anointing of the Holy Ghost for that. See, folks, that's why we can believe God for things for ourselves, but you can't always push your faith on somebody else. See, according to the Scripture, we have authority in our own lives. We make decisions and determinations for how things will be in our own lives. And we do that through the spoken word. We do that by finding what God's word says, agreeing with it by speaking it and holding fast to it. And that changes things in our lives. It changes conditions in our body. It changes conditions in our circumstances and our experiences. And just as Jesus told the disciples, faith will work for anybody, not just him. If you believe your words will come to pass, you'll have whatsoever you say. That's just how it works. Luke chapter 10. Jesus instructs his disciples to go into the cities. Beginning in verse 8, it says, Into whatsoever city you enter, and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you, and heal the sick that are therein, and say unto them, The kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. Now, how is it that they're going to be able to heal the sick in these cities well, first of all, the city has to, re has to receive them. We see in Luke chapter 4 and Mark chapter 6, where Jesus goes into his own hometown of Nazareth, preaches to them about the anointing of God that's upon him to set people free from sickness and disease and to work miracles and so forth. But the city wouldn't receive him. The people thought they knew him from the time that he grew up. They thought he can't be the Messiah because we know about his mother and his father. And everybody knew the virgin birth was a part of the, the prophecy concerning the Messiah. And so the Bible says Jesus in his own hometown of Nazareth could there do no mighty work. Mark 6, 5 says, and he could there do no mighty work. He didn't have any blind eyes open, any cripples healed or anything like that. No lepers cleansed. He could there do no mighty work. Doesn't say he wouldn't. Says he couldn't. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Why couldn't he do the, the works the miracles that he had already done that they had heard about being done in Capernaum. Why couldn't he do those things in Nazareth? Because the people wouldn't receive him. Now, folks, if Jesus, who had the Spirit of God without measure, who had all the power and the manifestation of the Holy Ghost in himself, if Jesus was hindered by unbelief, why is it a hard thing for us to think that unbelief will stop him from working today? Jesus was literally unable to do the things that he wanted to do in Nazareth because of the unbelief of the people. What you believe counts. Now, what you believe doesn't count for me, but it counts for you. What I believe may or may not count for you, depending on your will and your attitude toward the things of God. But we all have authority in our own lives, just as Jesus did. So what happens? These 70 return, verse 17, the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Now he can't be talking about Satan fell when they used their authority. He's talking about Satan 
that was cast out of heaven with a third of the angels that rebelled against God. And he was cast into the earth. See, when God recreates the earth through the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, the devil's already here. He's already fallen from heaven. He's already been dealt with by God. And that has to be part of the reason, at least, why the Lord said to Adam and Eve to subdue the earth. If there's no enemy, there's nothing to subdue. So Jesus is just identifying that Satan is a defeated foe. He was defeated when he appeared to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He's even more defeated today because of what Jesus has done. So he said, I have beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power. The word power there is the word authority. To tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. That second word power means ability. It's a different word. So he says, I give you authority over the devil's ability. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Now, folks, we may not be living up to this place of authority. We may be living in, a, in a, such a way that there are things that the enemy has brought against us or doing, a, doing to us or attempting to do to us that are hurting us and bringing harm to us. But if Jesus told the truth, the place of authority that's available to us is to be devil free. Amen. To be able to overcome and resist his influence in any and every area of our lives. Now, I think sometimes we shy away from saying it and, and being as blunt about it as that because we can see things in our own lives that we still need to shore up. Well, you don't have to wait till everything's perfect to realize and, and proclaim the truth, do you? Amen. See, that's true whether I'm living up to it or not. It's true because of what Jesus said. Now, a lot of things are in process or in progress. And thank God the word work is working for us, is at work in our lives. But this is what Jesus said. Jesus said, because of the authority we have over all the power of the enemy, over all the ability of the devil, nothing shall by any means hurt us when we exercise that authority in his name. Nothing shall by any means harm us. Now notice the next verse of scripture. Verse 20. Notwithstanding, in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Now what does it mean to have your name written in heaven? Well, he's got to be talking about the righteousness that becomes ours again through the new birth, doesn't he? Even your name written down in heaven wouldn't do any good if you hadn't been born again. So he's saying, don't rejoice because the devil is subject to your authority. Rejoice because you've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. Now remember Romans chapter 5 and verse 17. Paul said by the Holy Ghost, for since by one man's offense... Death reigned much more. They that receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life through one Jesus Christ. Folks, righteousness is a weapon. The life of God has been weaponized in us to defeat anything and everything the devil has. I'm going to close with one last scripture over in Mark chapter, uh, in, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 7. Beginning in verse 24, therefore Jesus, therefore whosoever, Jesus is speaking, therefore whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. What's he talking about? He's talking about living from your spirit, acting out of your spirit, not according to your flesh. He's talking about acting on the word because the word is true. Not because of how we feel, not because of how things look. He says, a wise man is a man that will work the word of God. Accept the word of God as his path to take. 
and no matter what he thinks or feels or how things are going otherwise. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, words that are spirit and life, and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, same storm, and the floods came, same floods, and the winds blew, same winds, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. Please notice, folks, they're not astonished at him. They're astonished at his teaching. The word doctrine just simply means teaching. It says they were astonished at his teaching. Now, folks, if Jesus' ministry was just going around proving that he was the son of God, who cares about the doctrine? What importance would there be about the doctrine? But we see that the doctrine is important by the example we just used a minute ago when Jesus was in his own hometown of Nazareth. They wouldn't receive what he said. They wouldn't accept what he declared when he read from Isaiah 61 about the spirit of the Lord being upon him and anointing him to heal the sick and bind up the brokenhearted and so forth. They wouldn't accept it. They wouldn't receive it. So Jesus, even though God sent him to that town to heal the sick and perform miracles, he couldn't do miracles in that town. It doesn't say that he wouldn't. It says that he couldn't. So it wasn't just a matter of sitting back and watching the miracles take place in and through Jesus. It was a matter of believing what he said so that God could work on their behalf. And that never has changed. If you don't believe what the word says God has done for you or is doing for you, then the power of God itself can't overcome that. The unlimited power of God's holy nature can't overcome that because you've been given authority in your life. You're the one that decides how things are going to be for you. God doesn't even decide that. God has worked in miraculous ways and gives us information about what's available to us. But you decide. You'll either have it the way he said. You'll either have it according to what he's determined. Or you won't. But it's up to you. So it came to pass when Jesus had ended these things. The people were astonished at his doctrine. For or because. Here's the important thing about his doctrine that amazed them. For he taught them as one having authority. And not as the scribes. Now this verse of scripture escaped me for a long, long, a long, long time. But one day out of the blue, no telling how many thousands of times I've read this passage before. One day out of the blue, it occurred to me and I noticed the word one, O-N-E. The word one is italicized, which means the translators added it trying to help us understand. In this case, they didn't. They didn't help us understand. I mean, it literally says, for he taught them as having authority and not as the scribes. Now, if you take the word one out of there, then it removes any possibility that the thing that amazed them was Jesus himself. The thing that amazed them was his teaching. Well, what, did, what was he teaching? The word as in the Greek language there that's in the original text, the word as means the manner in which something is done. We might say how. It speaks to the manner in which something is done. Now, the word having literally means to hold. So in the most literal translation that we could get from this verse of Scripture, it says the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them how to hold authority and not as the scribes. He's teaching them, Jesus is teaching them how to hold authority. Well, if you back up to where we started in verse 24, he's talking about doing the word. Whoso hears these words of mine and doeth them, I'll liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and it didn't fall because it was built on a rock. Built on the truth. 
Jesus is teaching them how to hold authority. What's the way? How do we hold authority? Jesus taught his disciples that it's through the words we speak. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. And shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Jesus operated his authority through the words that he spoke. Jesus, as the Son of God, exercised his authority through the words that he spoke. Remember what Mary told the servants at the wedding in Cana? Whatever he tells you to do, do it. His words matter. His words make things happen. Jesus, in the same respect, told his, uh, his, authority, he told his disciples how he exercised his authority. They had seen it in action the day before. Jesus cursed the fig tree and said, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. The very next chapter from where we are in chapter 7, we're at the end of chapter 7 of Matthew. In chapter 8, it tells us about the centurion that comes to Jesus and with an understanding of authority, amazes Jesus with his faith. He says, you don't have to come to my house. Speak the word only and my servant will be healed. Jesus is floored by that. He said, I haven't seen that kind of faith in all of Israel. Because one man understood authority. Jesus is teaching how to exercise authority. He's not going around teaching that I'm the only one that has authority. He's teaching that man was put here on the earth to the ex for the exercise of his authority. Because that was God's original purpose. It's God's present day purpose. It'll be God's eternal purpose. Jesus taught people how to hold authority. He taught them to act on the word. He taught them to speak the word. Because that's how we exercise authority. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for the authority that you've given us. We thank you for the revelation that we have from your holy word. We choose to speak your word, Father. No matter what things look like, no matter how things appear, we choose to speak your word. Your word is truth. So we say, because we believe in our hearts, we say with our mouths that we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We say, because your word says Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, and with his stripes we are healed, we say we're healed from all of sickness and disease. Because Jesus took the chastisement of our peace upon him, we say that all of our needs are met and we're provided for abundantly. We say that everything we put our hand to prospers. We say, Father, that we are the light of the world. We say that the world sees Jesus in us as we act on the truth of his word. We say, Father, we're delivered from all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt us. We say that the devil is under our feet in every respect. In Jesus' name. Now, Father, we take authority in this world, in this country, as the church of the living God. We thank you, Father, for strengthening our president and those that surround him. We ask, Father, that you would give them wisdom wisdom beyond political knowledge, wisdom beyond life experience, the very wisdom of God. And Satan, we command you to take your hands off the political scene of our country. We know you have a right to work, but we have a right for the restoration of our country. Father, you said if your people, not the world, but if your people would humble themselves and pray, You'd hear from heaven and heal our land. We ask that you heal our land, Father, in the precious and holy name of Jesus, that we may lead quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and honesty. Satan, we refuse to give you any place. Father, we ask that you would stir the church 
Christians, believers, to exercise their authority in this earth. To hold back the forces of the evil one. We know, Father, that your word tells us that the church is the only thing that's holding back the the great work of the devil and the revelation of the Antichrist. We're not ready to give up ground yet. So we thank you, Father. We thank you that you do all things well. We thank you, Father, that doing these things that we've asked are like things to you. We claim the victory of the cross in every area of our life and even for our nation. In Jesus' precious name. Everybody that agrees with that, say amen. 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 Folks, test the limits of your authority. See how far your authority goes. Boldly declare what God's word says, even though it doesn't look like it's, right, it's working for you. Let's step out boldly and use our authority and watch God do what he said. Amen. Amen. Say it with me. The Lord is good, the Lord is good. and his mercy endures forever. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being